you have your Bibles, please open them to Proverbs chapter 3. We will be looking at the last, quick math, nine verses in verses 27 through 35. It can be found on page 529 in the Bibles in the pew. So I'm cha- Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit dishonor, but fools get disgrace. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated, and as we do, let us together seek the Lord's help as we come to his word. Father God, as we just sang, your word says that blessed is the one who meditates on your word day and night, who recognizes the wisdom that you impart to us through your word, and we ask that you would impart that very wisdom to us this morning. May you bless my words, may you empower them by your spirit, forgive my many sins, but may your spirit also empower your people to hear, to be encouraged, to be motivated, to be moved, to put wisdom into practice as we see here in Proverbs chapter 3. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Today, if it's not obvious, we return back to our study in Proverbs chapter 3, and for those who have been wondering, I have gotten a question or two. Today is the day. It is the third week of our three weeks in Proverbs chapter 3. So you can breathe easy. It was a massive cliffhanger, I know, but we have come now to finally the final part of Proverbs chapter 3. And before we dive in, let me just offer you a quick recap of where we've been in the two weeks prior to this morning. Proverbs 3 is, is part of a larger lecture of a father to his son, pleading with his son, urging his son, encouraging his son to prioritize and to prize wisdom. The entire lecture actually makes up the first third of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9. And in Proverbs chapter 3 in particular, the first lecture we looked at was the father's call in the first 12 verses for his son to commit to wisdom by living in humble obedience to the Lord. Think of verse 5, a verse many of us have memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And then our second week covered verses 13 through 26, where we looked at the value of wisdom, the value that it holds out to the Son, specifically the value of blessing and security from the Lord. Verses 13 and 26, where we read, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And then for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. And so our passage this morning closes out this part of the lecture by offering then some practical applications of wisdom. It almost anticipates the son's hypothetical question of, well, what does this wisdom look like in life? How does it play itself out on a daily basis? And what we find is that the Father's answer is is both social and theological. Wisdom is going to instruct how the Son conducts conducts himself with others, 
while also instructing how he conducts himself before the Lord. And in some, we could say that the wise know the goodness of the Lord by seeking to do good to their neighbor. That's where we, we see this practice. This is wisdom in practice. It is being a blessing by living as one who is blessed. And to help us grasp this this morning, you'll see there's three points in the bulletin. They are the wise are good neighbors. The wise guard their hearts. And finally, the wise receive grace. First, we look at the wise are good neighbors. Now, what makes for a good neighbor? All of us are neighbors in one way or another. What makes a good neighbor? Is it a red sweater, a friendly smile, and some catchy tunes like Mr. Rogers? Or for our younger crowd, Daniel Tiger, they're one and the same. Or maybe it's like Wilson from Home Improvement. You know, he's always waiting at the fence to impart wisdom to Tim Taylor, even though Tim Taylor will never quite grasp that wisdom. And while these two characters may make for entertaining and even rather wholesome TV programming, being a good neighbor does not require us to buy red sweaters to get some tennis shoes or to wait strategically at our fences for our neighbors to stroll out into their backyard. And in fact, what the father teaches is actually that our neighbors are not limited to those who live near us. Physical location isn't really the, the emphasis. If you notice in verses 27 through 30, there's, there's a movement. The son's good neighbor behavior starts with a generic to those. That's anybody. And then it shifts to the neighbor. And then it gets back to the generic man. It's the father's way of showing that these principles he's fleshing out, they apply to the son's treatment of anyone not just those who are next door to him. It's his friends, it's his regular acquaintances, it's even the strangers he meets each day. The grand picture that he paints is that good neighbors are ultimately people of integrity. The son is encouraged to be a man of high character in all of his relationships. And we see this fleshed out for us in these five verses, 27 or four verses in 27 through 30, where the father gives four do not statements. And in telling the son what not to do, he is also at the same time instructing the son on what to do. It's very Ten Commandment-like. Whereas the commandment not to lie not only tells us don't lie, but also tells us speak truth. Or the commandment not to murder tells us not only to refrain from taking life, but seek to protect life. So the expectation in these do nots that the father lays before the son is that he's going to avoid the explicit negatives while also adopting the implicit positives. So then, according to these verses, what makes for a good neighbor? How does wisdom instruct the son to have integrity? Look at the first do not in verse 27. The father says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. This translates simply to give and to serve as you are able. The last phrase is the key. He says, when you have the power to do so. It's assuming that when a need is presented before the son, he is capable of meeting that need. 
The father isn't telling the son to, to, to do something or to give something that he doesn't have. He's commanding him instead to be ready and to be willing to help, to avoid being stingy, to avoid being resistant or reluctant to lend a hand, to do good to his neighbor. It could be the classic example. The neighbor knocks on the door and asks for a cup of sugar or an egg because there's a birthday party. They need to make a cake and they don't have the sugar or the egg. If you have the sugar or the egg, give the sugar or the egg. It could also be paying bills. If you have the ability to pay bill, give it to the one to whom it's owed. It could also be a friend asking for help moving, an acquaintance needing a lift, or a stranger who in need asks you for kindness. Or it could even be seeking or asking about a need that may be here, existing in the church, and being willing and eager to step in and meet that need. The principle is, if you can help, then help. That's what a good neighbor does. Then he moves in verse 28 to the next, do not. He says, do not say to your neighbor, go, come again, tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. He's saying, don't just give and serve, but do so generously, do so faithfully. I'll be honest, this one hits a little closer to home because I'm, I'm kind of the king of kicking the can down the road. Just ask my wife. I'll get to it later. I'll come back to it. Ask me again tomorrow. The father says, don't play such games with people who are in need. Do not make them wait if you have the ability and the power to meet that need right then and there. Don't leave them wondering, well, is he going to follow through with it? Did, did he just disappear on me? If you have the power to meet the need, then meet it in a timely and may I even say immediate fashion. We shouldn't look to make excuses or to wiggle our way out of meeting the need of the neighbor. Instead, we should do what Paul informed the rich to do in 1 Timothy 6, be generous and ready to share. Or what he told the entire church to do in Titus 3, be ready for every good work. This principle in 28 is for us to be not only willing, but to be ready and to be faithful. As a good neighbor should be. Moving on then to verse 29, he says, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. This is this idea of being loyal, being faithful to your neighbor. That phrase, plan evil, it's a pretty sinister image. It's not accidentally stumbling into evil, like when you throw a baseball through your neighbor's window, something I have done in my past. Or when you accidentally back into your neighbor's car, which is also something I have accidentally done in the past. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about actively scheming and plotting like a villain against your neighbor. It is preparing for, seeking for ways to bring about the downfall of another. And what's worse is it's a person who has done nothing to deserve it. If you want a, a biblical example, look at King Ahab and Jezebel and what they did to steal Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 29, 21. They plotted, they planned, and they ultimately destroyed Naboth to get what they wanted. Wisdom does nothing of the sort. It seeks to actually gain the trust of the neighbor and then make good on that trust, to protect the trust 
of the neighbor. It refrains from jealousy or trying to take advantage. Ultimately fulfilling the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And then we get to verse 30. Where he says, and do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. This is simply live peacefully or peaceably with your neighbor. Sadly, we live in a day where contention for no reason is the norm. It's even encouraged. Go spend five minutes on Twitter and you will be convinced. Because that is a place where, where pointless contention thrives. And even in the Reformed Christian world, we've gotten caught up in needless, baseless contention. What the father tells the son here is that a good neighbor who's been shaped by and informed by wisdom is not walking around looking for a fight. Yes, if a valid reason comes to disagree with your neighbor, by all means, defend the truth. Speak what is good and right and true. But the truth of the matter is, for many of us, we can be rather contentious for the sake of being contentious. I'm a sibling. I know what, I know what being contentious for the sake of being contentious looks like. I have three siblings who I spent mo- most of my formative years just being contentious so I could be contentious. We bait people into arguments for pleasure. We look for ways to, to push the buttons, to dial up the heat. And what we need to do instead is to, con- to trade contention for peace. Trade harm or seeking harm for seeking good. The good of our neighbor. Or again, to, po- to quote Paul, this time in Romans 12, 18, where he tells the church, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This begs the question for all of us then, are you a good neighbor? Is wisdom molding and shaping you into a person of integrity in all of your relationships? Personal, professional, and anywhere in between. Are you seeking the good of your neighbor, whoever they are, wherever they are? Are you striving to be that person of high character? A person who seeks peace in your engagements. Because such is the conduct of a wise and good neighbor. And such is the conduct that the father calls the son and all of us to adopt as wise and good neighbors. Second, then the father shifts. And in verse 31, he gets to the wise guard their hearts. Now, at first reading, this verse almost sounds like another do not statement the father gives. You might be wondering, why don't we just lump it in the previous four? And while it certainly could be lumped in with the previous four, this one serves as as both the center of the lecture and also the turning point. He's going to shift from this point to then get into our third point, which we'll get to. But if you notice, though, that the object of the son's good neighbor treatment here in verse 31 has changed. Before, all the people were in and of themselves good or deserving neighbors. In verse 31, though, this person who's getting good neighborly treatment is the opposite. It's who the father calls the man of violence. 
This is one who hates others. He uses brutality to get what he wants. He seeks to hinder, to harm, not to promote life. Such individuals are are villains in every sense imaginable. You can just insert your favorite villain from whatever book or TV show or movie that you like. That's who we're talking about here. They are and they do evil. And so this is why the father gives in verse 31 a double command. A double command is code for emphatic warning. No, it's not trying to soften the previous commands. Those are still incredibly important. But he's telling the son to to listen closer here. Give even more attention to these words. Don't ignore them. And these are the words he says, do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. Now, this double warning may leave some of us and maybe even the son, for all we know, scratching our heads. Because why in the world would anyone envy the violent? Why would anyone, knowing the way they live, look at them and seek to follow in their steps? I doubt and I certainly hope that no one here wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I want to walk a little more violently today. I think that would be a great idea. Or nobody sits around and says, I, I think I want to be a little bit more like that boss, that coworker, that friend who, who belittles people. And just destroys them and talks nothing but evil and gossip towards them. I want to be a little bit more like those people. So it makes us wonder, did the father like strike out with this command? Or did did it go over the son's head? No, it didn't because the father's aiming is at the son's heart. The father knows that the son's heart, that every human heart is prone to envy. Even to envy the wicked. Which... Begs the question, why? Why? Why does our heart want to envy the wicked? I believe Psalm 37, particularly verses 1 and 7, help to give us some insight. If you have your Bibles open, I'd invite you to turn there. But if not, just just listen as I read verse 1 and 7. Where this is David writing this, this psalm, this song. And he says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. He's, he's acknowledging... We're prone to envy. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Did you catch in there where the envy lies? It's not primarily in the person or even in his ways, but it's in the seeming success that it seems that they have. For if we're honest and we look out around us, as David looks out around his world, as the son looks around his world, it seems like the wicked win. They seem to be the one who rise to the top of the ladder. They seem the one to be in power positions of power and wealth. They seem to have the high status. They seem to have the Midas touch. Whatever they touch turns to gold. Considered in our own day. I'm not seeking to condemn anyone or to say that everyone who is in successful positions is an evil person. But it certainly seems like those at the top, whether politically, financially, or socially, are anything but good neighbors. And so it's tempting for us to look at them, to see the the outcome of their ways, and to envy it. To envy their methods. To begin to think, well, 
if lying and cheating proves successful to them, why not give it a try? If insults or gossip get them the promotion, why don't I just throw a few in when opportunity arises? The father is warning the son, he's warning us, that envy can make the wicked path seem harmless. It can make it even seem like it's the beneficial, the good path, the path to blessing. And it can tempt us to compromise. It can tempt us to move from the wise path and onto the path of folly. He's encouraging the son, reminding the son that wisdom guards our hearts. Because wisdom knows, as we're going to see in this last point, that the success and prosperity of the wicked is going to be short-lived. We know where it's going to end. Wisdom trusts in the life and the prosperity found in heeding God's command, all his commands, but his command to not covet. Whether it's our neighbor's stuff, our neighbor's paths, or our neighbor's success. Wisdom rejects thinking like, imitating, or desiring anything of the wicked and their ways. But wisdom also, especially in light of what Jesus would say in Matthew 5, leads us to humbly confess and repent that there have been times where we have been the wicked. Where we have been angry towards our neighbor. Where we have coveted our neighbor, where we have lied, where we have been unfaithful, where we have loved ourselves more than our neighbor. And so we must guard our hearts with wisdom. We must not let envy take root to regularly confess and repent when we see seeds of it in our relationships and the way we look at those around us. And thankfully, we're not left to ourselves because in Christ we have been given the very spirit of wisdom to lead us and to guide us. So may we be faithful to walk in accordance with his wisdom. Let him guard our hearts by instructing us, by leading us to desire and delight in the wisdom of God and the path on which it leads. May we be faithful to guard our hearts against envy and envy of the wicked. Finally, we get to the wise receive grace, and we see this in verses 32 through 35. And in a way, these verses, they serve as a fitting conclusion to not only our text for this morning, but the entirety of Proverbs chapter 3. Because if the son is going to pursue and prize wisdom, he can expect the blessings that we find in these verses. And likewise, if the son chooses to depart from or despise wisdom, he can equally expect the curses that are with it. But for our purposes this morning, we see that we're given additional motivation to be good neighbors, to guard against envy in these verses. For here in these verses, we find covenant blessing for those who seek to be good neighbors, for those who walk in wisdom. And we also find covenant curse for the wicked neighbors who walked instead in folly. The father in these verses explicitly presents before the son two kinds of people, two kinds of paths, two kinds of treatments that are received by the Lord. And he does this to, to lay before the son the choice that is before him. Choose one or choose the other. Know where the one leads 
versus the other. Let's briefly just work through these. In verse 32, he says, For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The devious is like that wicked person. It's one who plans, who schemes evil. But we see that his reward is hatred from the Lord. He who gladly does what the Lord hates finds the Lord hating him. These are harsh words, but they're true words. The upright, however, experience the very opposite. That picture of confidence is what one commentator calls the Lord's most intimate and confidential talk. We get a glimpse of this intimate, confidential talk in Genesis 18, where you remember the Lord pulls Abraham into his plans, in this case, his plans for Sodom and judgment. And then because of this invitation, what does Abraham do? But he pleads for the Lord to show mercy to the righteous. He begs the Lord to show mercy to if there's 10. Remember, he whittles it down to, I think, 10. And then finally, the Lord says, sure, if there's 10, I'll spare it. And all he finds is Lot. But this is how the Lord treats the upright. He invites them to commune with him, to know his will, to experience his love, and to understand what he's doing. And so if we have that intimate talk with the Lord, why in the world would we envy the devious? They have no such communion. Why would we think their paths are worth following? Because their paths are filled with darkness. They're walking blind. Uprightness is what promises intimacy with the Lord. Only uprightness brings the joyful blessing of communion with our God. Next, we come to verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. And here is where that covenant language comes through the clearest and the strongest, where we get curse, blessing. The wicked get curse, while the righteous get blessing. And to further differentiate this idea, he, he gives the picture of a house versus a dwelling place. For our modern ears, think of the way we, definitely, we, we typically talk about a home versus a house. A house is the building, the people in it, and the things that fill it. A home is, on the other hand, all of those things, as well as the life, the safety, the joy, the experiences that are in them. It is why we have signs that hang in our house that say things like, this is not a house but a home. It points to something even better. The righteous have a place like this. It is blessed by the Lord. It is blessed with his provision, his security, and his joy. It has nothing to fear. It has nothing to envy, especially anything to envy about the house of the wicked, which is a house that is cursed, a house that is condemned. The home of the righteous is safe and secure no matter what may come its way or even what it may look like on the outside. The house of the wicked should have and has no such confidence. It may look flashy. It may seem to be the nicest house in the neighborhood, but it is sick and damaged and it's not going to last. And on to verse 34, where the Lord says, Towards the scorners, or the father says, 
Towards the scorners, he, the Lord, is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Scorners are those who mock, who ridicule, who tear down in their arrogance and their pride. They think they're better than whoever is the object of their scorn. The humble are the polar opposite. They're the lowly, the needy, and they know it. They're often the object of the scorner's scorn. Again, we live in a day where, sadly, scorn is often celebrated. The ability to mock is seem, seems almost virtuous or viewed as a sign of strength. But the Lord doesn't take such a positive view of scorning. Instead, he promises to return the scorn, the mockery of the scorners on their own head. Only he's going to tear them down and expose them completely. The humble, however, will know the Lord's favor, or to borrow the New Testament word, his grace. We heard this earlier from 1 Peter chapter 5, which Bruce read for us, where Peter used this truth that the Lord is gracious towards the humble to encourage the entire church of Jesus Christ to clothe themselves with humility. To think of others as more important than yourselves. If your leaders serve with humility. If you're the, the people under the leaders to respect them with humility. Humility is the pathway to the grace of God. Grace is known by those who willingly and humbly submit themselves to him. Because it is the pathway that our Savior has already walked for us. We professed it earlier using, as Tim called, the, the hymn of Christ from Philippians 2, where we see that the exaltation of Jesus Christ being raised to the right hand of the Father came through his very humiliation. And the people of God are promised the Lord's confidence, promised his blessing, promised his grace, promised the inheritance of honor because it has been secured for us in Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. The humble have the grace of God because the humble have Christ. Through whom the grace of God has been abundantly poured out on us again and again and again. Which brings us then to verse 35. Where the father closes this lecture by now flipping and referencing the wise first. He says the wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Father calls a spade a spade. Those who are devious, wicked, and scorners are fools. Those who are upright, righteous, humble are wise. Both have an inheritance waiting for them. For the fool, it is an inheritance of shame and disgrace, not merely before other people, as bad as that would be, but ultimately shame and disgrace before the judgment seat of God. It's the opposite of what they thought they've had in the eyes of the world. The opposite of what they've been pursuing, spending their life trying to strive for and grasp hold of. But the wise, on the other hand, they have a glorious inheritance. It's an inheritance waiting for them. It is honor, it is exaltation, similar to the exaltation that Christ himself received. It will be before men as vindication for their faithfulness to walk in wisdom. But greater still, it will be before that same judgment seat where they will be exalted 
And they will be given the glory that has been promised to them because of Jesus Christ as their inheritance. So as we come to this third point and we, we look at what do we do with it, the question is for us to, to consider honestly, what is it that we will receive from the Lord? What will you receive from the Lord? Or maybe more specific, looking at the path you are currently walking, what are you hoping to gain? If your path is the path of wickedness or folly, let me tell you, there is nothing to gain and everything to lose. That path will only end in judgment and curse. We sang it earlier at the end of Psalm 1. The way of sinners far from God shall surely be overthrown. So if this characterizes you this morning as you look at your path, my call to you is to repent. Repent of your folly, repent of your evil. Whatever blessings you may think you have by walking that path, they're not going to endure. Turn instead to Jesus Christ. He will show you favor if you humbly turn in faith to him. He will graciously lead you off the paths of folly and onto the paths of wisdom and true blessing. And if you look at yourself this morning and your path is on the path of wisdom by the grace of God, then by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, keep walking that path. Trust in the blessings that God promises to his people by walking that path. Trust in the blessings that he promises to those who are righteous, upright, and humble, and wise. Trust him even when it may not seem like there's much benefit on these paths. Trust him even when it looks like the foolish may be winning. Also repent when you fail, and you will fail. Come back to him again and again to receive the grace that he offers to his children as they humbly, by the power of the Spirit, seek to walk in paths of wisdom. So as we close both this sermon and this series in Proverbs 3, how, how does wisdom inform or work itself out in our everyday life? I like what Matthew Henry writes when he gives a summary of this particular text. When he says, we must do all the good we can and no hurt to our neighbors. Because according as men are just or unjust, charitable or uncharitable, humble or haughty, accordingly they receive of God. So may we seek then and strive to be good neighbors, both as individuals, as families, and as a church. May we look for ways to lovingly serve, to do good, to follow Christ's commands, to love our neighbors as ourselves. May we pursue integrity in all of our relationships, whether personal, professional. May we not be tempted to envy the paths of the wicked, even when it seems like their paths are good or their paths are successful or easy. May we know and delight in the blessings that God promises to us as we walk in wisdom, in according to righteousness, in obedience and humility. For the path of wisdom is the only path worth walking on and is the only path that will ultimately lead to blessing. The wise know the goodness of the Lord by seeking to do good to their neighbors. Let us pray. Father God, would you make us wise? 
practically speaking, by doing good to our neighbors, whoever they are, wherever they are, to seek to love our neighbors as ourselves. May you guard us from envy of the wicked. It is evil, God, because if we are honest, we confess that we look at the wicked and it does seem like they're winning. Keep us from envy. Keep us, again, fixing our eyes on Christ, the one who walked the paths of wisdom, the one who humbly, for our sake, was obedient to death, even death on a cross, and is now exalted. May you confirm to us the blessings that you promised to your people as we walk humbly before you, our God. Do this work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray in his name. Amen.